So you're having a seat, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. When my dad was a kid, he and his uh, two younger brothers, Mike and Sam, they used to work periodically for uh, an old farmer down the road, and his name was uh, Tom Coffell. Tom Coffell was uh, an interesting character. He was blind in one eye, and he had a, a glass eye. And so whenever they would work for old farmer Tom Coffell, he would take his glass eye out, and he would put it on a fence post. And he would tell the boys, I'm watching you. So I will know if you are lazy, if you are not doing work, because I'm here, right? My eye is on you. Can you imagine? You know, I, I think how wonderful would that have been is when my kids were little, if I'd had a glass eye and I could just, you know, put it in their room. And that just freaked them out. It was, it was more frightening, in fact, than if Tom had been there himself, right? Tom didn't actually have to be physically present because he had left behind his glass eye. Did you know that ancient Near Eastern kings did essentially the same thing? All around their kingdom, they would set up images of themselves. They couldn't be physically present, so they would leave an image behind. And the image represented them, represented their authority and their power, their wishes, their desire, their will. They didn't need to be physically present because they left an image behind. Do you know that our God has done exactly the same thing? In his physical absence, so to speak, he has left something behind. You know what he's left behind? You. And me, us. We are the representation of God's desires, God's will, God's personality on earth. I want you to read with me Psalm chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. David says, when I look out at at all that you have created, God, and I see the majesty and the splendor and the beauty and the glory see the representation of all of your power, and then I look at myself and I look at my fellow man, I think, why do you even think about us? We seem so small and insubstantial, and yet you have chosen to elevate us, to make us, in a sense, just a little lower than you and cause us to rule and represent you over all of the earth. David says, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. I can't even contemplate that. Or as he says in Psalm 139, I will give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Your works are wonderful, O Lord, and you have declared that I'm the most wonderful of all of those. What is it that sets man apart that makes man so special? Uh, It's the image of God. The image of God is one of the most important theological and practical concepts in the entire Bible. We're introduced to the idea right from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, God said, 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them in his image. Men and women, that's what sets us apart. That's the most important thing about every man or woman or child that you will meet is that they are in the image of God. So what does that mean? Well, it means four things. It means that we have the capacity to relate to God and to one another in ways that nothing else in all of God's creation can do. We have the capacity to reflect God's glory in our character. We can also radiate God's glory in our form. And the result of these three things is that we, and we alone, have the honor and the privilege of representing God's purposes, God's plan, God's wishes, desire, will, his program on earth, like nothing else can do. So let's look at each of these. We relate to God and others because we are in the image of God. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Remember, eternal life in John's theology, not just being a long life or a really, really, really long life. It's not simply duration of life, but quality of life. God is the only one who has life in himself. And Jesus said the Father has life in himself. He gave to the Son to have life in himself. And he gave the Son the authority to give life. Right? Life, eternal life, as we talked about when we discussed the Trinity, is that life that was shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we said that salvation is actually being brought into that mutual love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we alone have the capacity to enjoy that of all the creatures that God had made. Now the result of that is that we can relate to one another because we are all mutual image bearers of God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Right? God looked around at all that he created. He saw birds in the heavens, and he saw the beasts in the field. He saw sun, moon, and stars, and he said, It is good, it is good, it is good. All these things that I've made, they were, these things are really, really good. But then he saw Adam living alone, laboring alone in the garden. He said, But that's not good. Right? That's not good. And it, it's not simply uh, that there's too much work to do. It's that the image of God cannot be fully reflected or represented on earth when man is alone. Which doesn't mean if you're single that you have to get married for the image of God to be reflected in you. It means that you have to be in community, in relationship with other people. We were designed for that. We were designed for that because that's the very image of God. Remember the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship with one another forever, eternally, past, present, future, And for us to fully reflect and experience the image of God in us, we have to be in relationship with other people. If if you are isolated or you isolate yourself and you are not in any kind of community with other people, you know what happens? You get weird. (laughs) Sorry, you just get weird. My people living alone, they get weird. That's not natural. You need people. And other people need you. That's how you were made, men and women. That's part of being made in the image of God. Right? We can relate to God and we can relate, therefore, to one another because we are image bearers of God. Second, we reflect God's glory in character. Okay, we reflect God's glory in character. I don't know if any of you have um, done Buck Anderson's word study with him, but uh, he goes through multiple words, and one of the words that he will take you through is the word glory. He loves studying the word glory. It's a beautiful word. It essentially means, literally in Hebrew, something that is heavy, Right? Or weighty. Kavod means heavy. A thing that's literally heavy. Metaphorically, it's something that's important. If it's heavy, it's important. So how do you glorify God? Well, you make God's name heavy. 
Right? You demonstrate the weightiness or the value or the importance of the nature of God. That's what it means to glorify God. We have the capacity to make God's name heavy or weighty through our own character. Right? Through, the, through the reflection, in a sense, of the personality of God in our personality. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God says, this is what I'm like. I'm holy. I'm different. I'm set apart. And notice the connection. We are called to be holy because of our relationship with God. He's our Father, and we're His children. That means we are the family of God, and we should reflect the values, the personality, the character of the family. God's your father. You're his children. Children should reflect something of their parents. I, I learned this with my kids. Uh, you know, early on, I didn't realize that there were you know, certain things that I, I wanted them to do or think or believe because they were just, they're just little. They're babies. And I guess it was as they began to grow up and they began to not reflect things that I wanted them to reflect that I began to realize, well, no, actually... Since you're a fisher, I want you to, to, to think and act and believe and feel like this. And one of the things I discovered is that uh, for my kids, I wanted them to be people who took the initiative with others. I didn't want them to be people who were passive, who were, who were always waiting for others to initiate with them. I wanted my kids to walk up and say, hi, my name is, and, and what's your name? And, and then begin to ask questions about that other person and, and show an interest in that other person. In other words, just take the initiative. Or you see someone who has a need, go, go find that need and then meet that need. You know, a lady's walking out and she needs some help with her groceries. Well, just come alongside and unload those groceries. Find out that someone is in financial need. Well, let's meet that need. Let's take the initiative. Realize that's what I wanted for my kids. And I began to think, you know, why, why is that important for me? And one of the things I realized is that um, as I was growing up, our family moved around a lot. Like, I've sat down before and I counted how many times. I can't remember exactly. But I went to uh, three different grade schools, two different junior highs, and three high schools. Right? So we're moving around a lot. So, you know, when you're in school and you're the new guy, which I was always the new guy, right? And, you know, in junior high, not a lot of people are initiating with you. Or if they are, it's not in a good way, right? So, you know, it's always, uh, particularly if you're sitting in class, it's okay if you don't have any friends, because you're not supposed to be talking to your friends anyway, right? You're just supposed to be sitting learning. So it's okay to not have friends, but then when you go to lunch, you need to have friends. Because you all friend up and sit together and eat together. And so I walked into many lunchrooms, and I'm just sitting there by myself, right? Now, yeah, don't say, I, I'm okay now. <laughs> no, I'm not asking. The point of the message was, you know, feel sad for me. That's not... Many years of therapy, right? And I'm good. I'm good. Um, so <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Uh, my point is this: it, that that idea, that experience, kind of have shaped me. And I, it's important for me, especially you know, if I see someone who is by themselves. Now, I will tell you, even now, if I go into a restaurant and there's somebody sitting by themselves, eating by themselves, particularly, oh man, they're eating alone. There's something that comes up inside of me, and from time to time, I will actually literally go over and say, I notice you're by yourself. Do you want to join our group? You know, I'm like, go, I just wanted to be alone. Who's this guy? Hey, are you sad? Come be with me. You know, that's, I, but it's in me, right? And, and I realized I want that to be 
in my kids. They call themselves a part of my family. Well, then don't be passive. Don't wait. Don't sit back. And when I, when I moved to Dallas, I was looking for a new church, and I went from church to church to church, and you know, I realized, gosh, I'm sitting in church, and nobody's, nobody's coming and greeting me. Nobody's initiating with me. Nobody's coming after me. And honestly, I got a little grumpy. Like, you know, bad church, bad church, bad church, you know, and I'm just kind of moving from church to church to church. When are people going to kind of, you know, say hi to me and take me to lunch? And, you know, and then I realized, I just had that moment where I thought, but wait, you, you take the initiative, Brian. You can do this. God, God trained you. He gave you a life of experience after experience where you had to go out and you're uncomfortable. And so I began to introduce myself and invite people to come with me. You know, my whole attitude and experience towards church changed. Changes all things. Well, that's just one area in which if you're part of my family, I want you to be like this. God says, I'm your heavenly father. You're my children. Do you know what I'm like? Well, I'm holy. I'm different. I'm set apart for one thing. I actually love my enemies. I love my enemies. I actually do good for my enemies. I release debts. I forgive. And I want you to be like me. And you can be like me because you are made in my image. Third, we radiate God's glory in our form. We radiate God's glory in our form. This word for image occurs just 17 times in the Old Testament. But the word image uh, in all but two of those refers to a a literal form. A, A literal image or a literal form. So remember, glory means heaviness or weightiness or importance. Glory also means brilliance or beauty. And so the image of God in you, or that form that God has given you physically, has the capacity to actually radiate the beauty and the brilliance of God. Let me illustrate for you. Exodus chapter 34. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. That's really weird. That's amazing. The, the beauty of God, I mean, the, 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 the literal beauty of God had embedded itself into the skin of Moses, and he walks out, and it's, it's a beauty that's, it's almost scary beauty, right? It's just, it's just frightening because he would come out and none of the rest of them glowed. But, you know, at nighttime when Moses would finish his moments with Jesus and he would walk out of the tent, they could follow him and get home, right? There's Moses. He's just blazing this trail of light and beauty. Your physical form has the capacity to actually radiate the beauty of God. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness, they will shine like the stars forever and ever. That's literal, men and women. And you may look at yourself now and look at your form now and say, "Mm, man, not so much. I've never known anyone who's perfectly content and happy with every aspect of their physical being. But the fact is this, God has given you a physical being or a form that has the capacity to actually radiate the beauty of God. And it will. It may not be perfect now, but it will radiate the very beauty of God. The result is this. We, men and women, we and we alone of all of God's creatures, represent God's purposes, God's plan 
God's will, God's wishes, God's desires. We represent God on earth. We're, we're the leave behind. Okay? Read with me again Psalm chapter 8. It says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory, right, with importance and with beauty and majesty, and you make him to rule over all the works of your hands. You have put him over all things, all things. All things are placed under the feet of man. To rule means to, uh, to put things in order or to keep things in order or to create new things, new ideas, new beauty, to represent the, the creativity in the mind and the heart of God. That means to rule over all of God's creation. Okay, so step back with me for a moment. And let's think again about that idea of image as form, right? God has given you his image. You're made in the image of God. And part of that is you're given a form that is appropriate for the realm in which you live, this physical realm. You have a physical body in a physical realm, but it's a form also that has the capacity to represent him in this world. Now, track with me for just a minute here. Psalm 94 verse 9 says this, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Uh, Two rhetorical questions. The answer is, yeah, God hears and God sees. But God doesn't actually have ears and eyes, right? Because God is not, in that sense, uh, physical until the incarnation, until Jesus took on human form. God doesn't have body. God, by nature, is spirit. So he doesn't have literal eyes and ears. Those are called anthropomorphisms. But the point of the psalm is that God does hear and God does see. In fact, in the context, there are things that are happening on earth that God doesn't like. The, the poor are being oppressed. Uh, widows are being taken advantage of. There are people who, who really are needy, and there's no righteousness in the land. And God says, hey, you think I don't see this? I see it. You think I don't hear their cries? I hear their cries. I, I do. I see all of these things. And men and women, I formed you with a literal physical organ so that you could join with me in hearing and seeing. right? So that you could be my eyes on earth and represent my compassion for those who are lost and needy and broken So you could hear their cries and respond because that's who I am. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. I'm kind. I'm righteous. I'm holy. I'm different. This is who I am. You can be my hands and you can be my feet and you can serve and you can go because you are given a form that's appropriate to this particular place to do my bidding and to represent me on earth because you're in my image. Or if I can say it differently, we are actually made to inhabit Two realms simultaneously. At all times and in all places, we are made to represent two realms simultaneously. That is, the physical and the spiritual. We are physical and we are spiritual. And we are made to inhabit both realms fully at all times. And when God created Adam, right, he, he uh, again, metaphorically, right, he, he reached down into the dust of the earth. And the word for earth in Hebrew is Adama, from which we get the name Adam, right? He reached down into the Adama and he made a physical form, a body. 
for Adam. But it wasn't, in a sense, Adam yet. It was just a body. But then God breathed into him the breath of life, and life is the sole possession of God. That mutual experience between Father, Son, and Spirit. God only has it independently, but then he gives it to man. He breathes into him the breath of life. That is, he breathes into that physical body the breath of life, and now man is animated, and man becomes Adam, and he needs a name. Let's call him the one who's from the earth. Adam. He's physical. He's spiritual. He's both. Because he is to be in relationship with me, but he lives on earth. Right? That is who man is. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul said, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, right? Who are you? Well, you are body and spirit. You are both. In fact, your body doesn't just house your immaterial inner man, that is your spirit, but actually was designed to carry about the Spirit of God. So it matters what you do with your physical body because there's nothing you can do that is purely physical because you're also a spiritual being. You are physical and you are spiritual. That is a a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of man. So what? Part of this series, um, Blake and Matt and I talked about from the beginning is you know, we don't want this to be a, a data about God, right? So you, you, you write notes and you write verses and you write ideas, and now you, you know something more about God. But really, we've got to ask the question, well, why does that actually matter? How does that matter practically in our lives? So I want to bring up a, a couple of, of issues that we see moving around in our culture, some ideas that demonstrate that biblical anthropology is actually relevant to what we see happening in our world today. So I want to talk about gorillas and the girls' room, Okay. Talk about gorillas in the girls' room. Uh, this is uh, Harambe, or more accurately, I should probably say this was Harambe. Um, I'm assuming that many of you are familiar with the story, but in case you're not, let me just briefly give you the storyline. Up until a few weeks ago, uh, Harambe, he's a, a, he was a western lowland gorilla, 450 pounds, and he lived in the Cincinnati Zoo. But a few weeks ago, somehow a little boy climbed into the gorilla habitat, four-year-old boy. And so zoo officials were alerted, and they rushed to the scene, and they gave a little signal, a call, to get the gorillas out of the habitat and back into their cages. But Harambe was getting a little bit freaked out, seeing this boy in the habitat. And so he didn't, he didn't come. He didn't respond to the call. All the other gorillas left, but Harambe went, and he grabbed the kid. Grabbed the four-year-old boy, and he's holding on to him. And the zoo officials try to figure out, what, what, can, we, what can we do here? If we shoot him with a tranquilizer dart, dart he could before he passes out, could kill this child quite easily. And so they shot Harambe. They killed Harambe. So, why didn't they negotiate? Why didn't they call in the guerrilla SWAT team, right, and say, hey, Harambe, let's talk, right? You know, this, this this is a bad thing to hurt children, right? Let's negotiate. Don't kill the child. In fact, Harambe, if you hurt this child... Right, we're going to cut back your banana quota for the week. Right, we're cutting it. Or if you do well and you release this child, we're going to add to your banana quota. Right? Why? Why didn't they make any kind of appeal whatsoever to the conscience of Harambe? He's not a morally responsible being. He's not made in the image of God. And if Harambe had killed the child, would we have thought that Harambe was morally responsible? 
No, we expect animals in the wild, they're going to kill each other and eat each other, and that, that doesn't surprise us at all. Why? Because gorillas were never commanded, be holy, because your Heavenly Father is holy, because God is not the Heavenly Father of gorillas. Even though we share a lot of genetic material that's very similar in our DNA, they're not made in the image of God. There's not a moral equivalence. But not everyone, even in our culture, agrees with that. Right? There was a lot of moral outrage on behalf of Harambe. There was a petition on change.org website to get justice for Harambe. As if there's a moral equivalence between gorillas and people. Okay? Men and women, that's, but biblical anthropology informs how we think about the value of human life. Are animals important? Absolutely. God made them. Right? God made them. They're a reflection of the creativity and the, the intelligence of God. And yet, the life of man is more valuable to God than the life of an animal. Because we and we alone are made in the image of God. Second illustration for you. The girls' room. Who belongs in the girls' room? Well, I'm guessing most of you would say girls. Right? But our, that's not where our culture is moving. Um, in fact, uh, gender is now really kind of a, considered a fluid thing in the rhetoric today. You're assigned a gender at birth. And I don't know exactly who assigns it because I know as a parent I didn't get a pick, right? So I'm not who, sure who's doing the assignment, but you're assigned a, a gender. But you don't have to submit to that assignment. You can choose what your gender is. Now let me say right now, if you have a friend who's really wrestling with this issue and confused, and they're not sure, am I male or am I female? Love that friend. Love your friend. Love your friend. You know why? Because that friend is made in the image of God. And the most important thing about that friend is that they're made in the image of God. It's not, the most important thing is not that they're struggling and wrestling and being confused with are they male or female. The most important thing about that friend is that they're made in the image of God, so love your friend, Right? Think truth biblically, what is a biblical anthropology. Believe truth, even speak truth graciously, kindly, in love. And do not be surprised, men and women, that our culture does not think like we think. Don't be surprised. Because when, when a culture, and this is true in our culture, when our culture uh, turns away from listening to the voice of God, then the culture cannot understand who God is. And if a culture can't understand who God is, guess what? We're going to get confused about who we are. Why? Because the most important thing about us is we're made in the image of God. If we don't understand the image of God in God, we can't understand the image of God in us. And what is one of the most important aspects of the image of God? In the image of God, he made them male and female. So don't be surprised that as cultures drift from God, they're going to become confused about one of the most fundamental ideas in human nature, which is, am I male or am I female? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. That's biblical anthropology. And, and that's why it matters to, to, to think biblically about your world. Augustine once wrote, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long course of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motions of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. I would argue in our day and age, actually all that people wonder about is themselves. Right? But all that they listen to as they wonder about themselves is this inner voice, which is very confused right now. And when they turn outward and they listen to the culture, the culture is confused. 
they listen to their friends and their family members who are increasingly moving away from God, then they're confused as well. And so all the voices that they're hearing, they can't speak definitively. They just don't know. Why? Why is there so much confusion about, in a sense, who we are? Because we're fatally flawed. Fearfully and wonderfully made, true. Fatally flawed, yes. Both. We are both fearfully and wonderfully made, but fatally flawed. We are beautiful, but we are broken. Uh, I have a visual illustration for you here this morning. This is a a vase that I picked up in Colorado uh, at a glass-blowing shop. And uh, in this glass-blowing shop, I went to the the back of the shop, like at the very back, behind this wall, there's a shelf of all of the irregular stuff. And I bought this because I'm cheap. And um, actually, that's only part of it. I am cheap. I, I need to affirm that truth. But uh, it's not the only reason I bought it. I also bought it because I looked at it and I go, man, you know, that is, that is really beautiful. But it's, it's actually it's not quite right. And it's not symmetrical. You look at it and you say, Something, something's wrong here. You can't put that thing out on the front shelf representing the best that the store has to offer. We've got to put it in the back corner. It's beautiful and it can sort of fulfill its function, but it's not quite right. And I grabbed that and... I looked at it and I said, you know, someday this will be a sermon illustration. <laughs> and I don't have to pay much for it. Uh, this is us, right? Beautiful, but mm, there's something that's not quite right about each and every one of us. Remember, what is it made to be in the image of God? Four things. We relate to God and others. We have the capacity to reflect God's glory in character. We radiate God's glory in form. And we can represent God's purposes. Well, how well do we actually do at these things? Uh, Gosh, most of the world rejects God outright. Or worships a form of God that is in their own making and often in their own image. It's called idolatry. How do we relate to one another? Well, what drives the news is the brokenness of relationships. War, racism, divorce. I mean, crime. That's what drives the news. We don't do well relating to God or others as, as humanity. How about reflecting God's glory and character? If I'm honest with myself, my best days are tinged with pride and fear and you know self-centeredness and all kinds of stuff like that at my best. How do we radiate God's glory in our form? Well, <laughs> fact, your body's getting worse. <laughs> You know, this is where we are, right? Well, there's some of you who are, you're actually moving toward the peak. Just a few of you still toward the peak. You're going to peak. It's going to be, you know, 18 to 22. But it's not like a long plateau. It's just this, it's a real short peak. You know what happens after the peak? This is, this is where you are, right here, right here. So, you know, the rest of us are looking back going, come on. You know, this is where you're coming. The form just, uh, 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 uh. It's slower, it aches more, you know, the hair falls out, the whole thing. It's just, it's rough. So how do we represent God's purposes? Well, again, most days we want to build our own kingdom. Our own name, our own reputation, our own comfort. That's what we're into is our kingdom. We are created in the image of God, but we are broken. We don't do what we were called to do well. I don't know if uh, any of you have have, um, read some of these dystopian novels, right? It's often been said that you should... Read with your Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other was the old thing. I say now, read with your Bible in one hand and 
uh, the arts. So what's happening in music and movies and what are the Facebook threads and Twitter and Instagram? You know, read, read these things through the lens of your Bible, right? Bible's in one hand, see the culture in the other. Uh, dystopian novels are very popular right now. Hunger Games, uh, Divergent series, all that stuff. Uh, I was watching one of those movies a few uh, nights back with my kids, and movie's going on, and in the middle of the movie, I just I punch pause. You know, right? And the kids go, well, what are you doing, Dad? I go, well, let's, let's talk theology for a minute. <laughs> real, real receptive moment, right? For, so I said, you know, well, what do you see as, what's the theme here? in all of these uh, dystopian novels. And I actually didn't wait for a response because I, I wasn't thinking Socratically. I didn't want to have a Socratic moment. I just want to tell them. So I said, here's what I see. Here's what I see. I see this. Um, the idea is this. The adults in the room have messed everything up. Right? And they've created this chaotic, uh, oppressive environment. But there's still some, some young people and children who are in the room, and they're good, and they're pure, and they're holy, and in and of themselves, their character hasn't been corrupted, and they're going to step in, and they're going to set everything right that all the the adults have screwed up. And my son said, Dad, Dad, exactly. Your generation has messed things up for my generation. You have left us with trillions of dollars of debt. I go, this is my lecture, right? So just stop. You know, true, true, but... Your generation will do it for the generation that follows you. Because, you know, those pure and holy children and youth that you think exist, they don't. They're actually greedy adults in the making. And they're going to ruin it for the generation after them. So just stop, right? You know, that, that, that's truth. Okay, that's truth. Why? Because every generation is broken and fallen and flawed. Fatally so. Fatally so. Why? Blake talked about uh, sin, homartiology, recently, and, and that's why. Sin. The first woman was deceived. The first man was a fool. And together, they rebelled against the authority of God. And in that rebellion, God said, you're going to die. You, you can't live apart from me. Why? Because I'm the only one who has life in myself. You want to be alive, fully alive? Well, you've got to be with me and in me. Because you don't have life in yourself. You, the life that you have is a borrowed life. It's a gift I give to you. And so what happened in the moment that Adam and Eve uh, ate of the fruit? We're told they died. Or they didn't die physically in that moment. But in that moment, they were cast out of the garden. They were separated from perfect fellowship with God. That's, death is separation, right? The spirit of man and the spirit of God were no longer perfectly united. That's, that's death. That's spiritual death. Separation. And then years later, they, they died physically, which is another separation. It's the body from the spirit. The point being this, death is a completely unnatural thing for humankind. Everybody dies, so we think it's natural. It's not. We were made for life. We were made for for perfect fellowship with God and with one another. So death is is this alien thing that has come into our existence. Came in through Adam's choice. Romans 5.19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Or as it says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam all die. It means you were born dead, physically alive, your spirit is still connected to your body, but, but spiritually dead. Your spirit's not connected to God. 
That's why we sin, right? We don't become sinners as we choose to sin. We're born sinful. That's why we will sin, right? We prove the fact that we're separated every day by the choices that we make. Now, let me uh, make a little side comment here. Um, When I read a lot of the the current Christian literature on sanctification, you know, that process of becoming holy and like God, uh, there's a phrase that I frequently see in in popular sanctification literature, and it is uh, the real you, right? Quote, unquote, the real you. So the real you always loves God. The real you really wants righteousness and holiness. The real you is always kind and forgiving. That's the real you. And I look at it, I go, no, that's not it at all. You know who the real you is? That right there, just sitting in front of me. This is the real you with your love for God and your love for yourself. With your, your longing for close relationships, but resistance to forgive, right? With something in you that longs to be generous and give, but also fearful and selfish. With your body that is beautiful, but it's also broken, right? This thing right here, this is you. All of it, the whole thing, it's the real you. The point being this, all of you collectively and each of you individually, your entire being needs to be rescued and restored. Absolutely everything. Now, that is the great hope for mankind, that we will in fact be fully restored. The, the body fully restored, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, actually coming true, where you will shine like the stars of the heaven, because it says in Philippians 3, your body will be just like the body of the Son of God who took on human flesh, died on your behalf, raised again, exalted and glorified, and that glorified body of Jesus, which is beautiful and brilliant and caused John to fall down in worship, that's what you will be like. Right? Physically restored, and even more importantly, spiritually reconciled to God and put back into completely right relationship with God. And when you are in right relationship with God, then you can be in right relationship with fellow image bearers. And then, progressively, slowly, as that's happening on earth, as we're setting relationships right, we represent who God is and what God loves on earth. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus said, you know, don't just love your friends. Don't just do good to those who give back to you because that's not what God is like. Do you want to be children of God? you want to reflect the family name? Well, this is who God is and this is what God is like. God actually causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He actually loves his enemies, and he does good for his enemies. Actually, Jesus says, I'm going to die for my enemies. I'm going to sacrifice for my enemies. I'm going to hang on a cross and say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. You want to be like me and represent me? Well, this is what I'm like. Okay, so application. Psalm 139, verse 14, um, a couple weeks ago I gave you a verse to memorize, uh, giving you a shorter one this week. Psalm 139, verse 14, short verse, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Uh, I'm sure none of you are perfectly content with everything about either your body or your personality or whatever, but the fact is this, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has given you a, a personality and a body to carry that personality throughout this earth and uh, do good and glorify God. And I want you to spend some time this week giving thanks for that. Okay? Not focusing on the things that you're really discontent with, but the gifts that you have been given that you can honor God with and do good to others with. I want you to memorize this. I want you to meditate upon it and think about that fact. I also then want you to, to take this idea of image of God and consciously be aware as you are interacting with the people around you, these are people made in the image of God. What does that mean? And how does that influence the way that you see them and look at them? If they are genuinely in the image of God, just as you are in the image of God, how should you treat them? How should you feel about them? Particularly those people who are really a bit different from you, or you might say enemy, in the image of God. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It's from a short article he wrote called The Weight of Glory. He said, The dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. These people that you are, he says, um, working with, marrying, snubbing, exploiting, are in the image of God. And they will one day also reflect and radiate that image of God. And if you could actually see them like they will be, you might fall down and worship them. So how should you treat them today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself, and I thank you that you've revealed yourself in us. And I pray, Father, that we would walk out of here uh, maybe just seeing ourselves a little more clearly and truthfully, and as a result, seeing the people around us more clearly and truthfully. We would reflect the beauty of your character, that you are true and you are righteous and you are kind and you are good, And all of your wonderful attributes, Father, would be reflected in the way that we live our lives with others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week being a blessing.